MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 64 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. I feel like we were just here (laughs) because we were. We did a bonus episode on Tuesday of this week. But now it's Sunday, February 18th, 2024. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Oh, my gosh. We have so much to cover today. (laughs) Holy cow. These Fridays are killing me. Uh, The application for a stay on the immunity issue has been fully briefed to the Supreme Court uh, so they can render a decision at any time. And we're going to go over those briefs in in detail. Yeah. And actually, that bonus episode was last week. I'm just I have completely (laughs) lost all track of time. Andrew. You know, as you said it, I was like, oh my God, was that a couple days ago? It seems like a week ago, but I just (laughs) like, like, just let's go with it, right? And, you know, we just in this week, we have gotten fully briefed on that immunity thing. That's that's bananas. We got the we got the brief. We got the reply and we got the response. Um, We're also going to give you an update on Florida. Some other breaking news we can't ignore, by the way. Uh, This is just happening as we record on Friday. Judge Angoron in the New York Attorney General civil fraud trial has fined Trump and his two adult sons and Weisselberg. Uh, a total of $364 million. Ouch. He has barred Trump from the real estate industry in New York for three years and the two adult sons for two years each. He's going to keep retired Judge Barbara Jones on as a fiscal monitor, and she gets to recommend names to appoint an independent director of compliance that's going to be installed at the Trump organization. Uh, So before we dive into the immunity briefings, what are your top line thoughts on this ruling? Well, my first thought is whoever that new independent compliance guy is, I'm guessing he wins the award for least popular dude in the Trump organization. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If there's an in house popularity contest, kind of like a a homecoming king vote or something, I feel like he's least likely to have lots of friends vote for him. But. Man, that's a tough one. Starting d- day one of the new job, knowing that you are, you're the person the court inflicted on the, your new company. Mm. Oh gosh, yeah, that's a rough one. I mean, I big. guess we, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I don't even know if we have to go through this today, but let's do it. Good week, bad week, right? Here we are again. <laughs> <laughs> I could. I was waiting for you to ask. <laughs> I, mean, I was like sitting in my hotel room last night. I'm like, good week, bad week is going to be really interesting tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a that's a big hit on a Friday afternoon. I think that's pretty much good enough to tank your entire week. What do you think? <laughs> your entire next five years, which yeah. could be how long it takes to appeal this, if he can even come up with the money needed to appeal it. We're, we're, I guess we're about to see how much liquid cash he actually does have on hand because- with this and the E. Jean ruling and the 9% New York interest rate that has to be applied, uh, that's like $540 million. That's uh, a and lot, yeah. It, he's, it, given the circumstances, I think he's going to be hard-pressed to get a loan <laughs> for, 
right I've, about now? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand. Like, sure, the pendency of the appeal delays the amount of time that you have to kind of forfeit the funds to, in the E. Jean Carroll case, obviously E. Jean Carroll in this case would be to the state. But it doesn't mean that you just get to keep that money and do whatever you want with it while the appeal's ongoing. He has to either deposit the full amount with the court or he has to go out and, and as you said, get a loan or a bond. Um, and he'd still have to put up, I think, 20% or something like that. So it's, however you slice it, it's a lot of money that's sitting on ice rather than being used for your business or your campaign. So it's tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he can't pay this directly out of the pack. That would be illegal. So we'll see what ends up happening. But uh, he still hasn't put up the money into escrow for the Eugene verdict, the $83.3 million, um, to appeal that. Because, you you know, you can't just appeal. Like you said, you got you to put money in an escrow account to appeal. Yeah. And we'll see what happens. All right. Let's talk about the Supreme Court briefings. As predicted, Trump filed an application for a stay. He has not filed a petition for certiorari, which is basically a, an appeal to the Supreme Court, right, on the merits. He He's just asking for a stay here. Because if you go through the regular order, uh, regular judicial order, you ask for a stay, you get a stay, then you have, a, uh, I think, 120 days to file your petition for cert, and then they can sit on that for a while. And And that's exactly what Jack Smith doesn't want to happen here. So this all got briefed this week since our last episode. Um, and he, he, Trump wants the Supreme Court to grant him a stay and give him a long time to file his petition for cert. So let's go over his arguments for a stay because they're really yeah, wholly insufficient. He's really kind of cagey too in the way that he says, you know, I might petition for cert if I need to later, or I might request an en banc rehearing of the D.C. Circuit's decision. And so he he definitely is kind of, okay, I have to take one step here, which that one step is is asking for the stay to remain in place. And I'm absolutely not taking two steps, right? I'm going to stretch this out as, as long as I possibly can. Yeah, he, he is. And here's, <laughs> he opens with a quote from Yogi Berra, which is just so weird. Uh, to me. Um, he says, the application is deja vu all over again. Yogi Berra Museum and Learning Center, yogiisms with a link. <laughs> Two months ago, after the district court denied President Trump's claim of presidential immunity, the special counsel filed a petition for certiorari before judgment, asking the Supreme Court to undertake an extraordinary departure from ordinary appellate procedures and decide the vital and historic question of presidential immunity on a hyper-accelerated basis. This court correctly chose to follow standard judicial process and declined to do so. Now, at the special counsel's urging, a panel of the D.C. Circuit has, in an extraordinarily fast manner, issued a decision on President Trump's claim of immunity and ordered the mandate returned to the district court to proceed with Trump's criminal trial in four days, business days, unless this court intervenes, which it should. This court should stay the D.C. Circuit's mandate to forestall once again an unprecedented and unacceptable departure from ordinary appellate procedures, which means you should really go super slow and not even hear this until the next term and allow President Trump's claim of immunity to be decided in the ordinary course of justice. Yeah. So you, you see the two themes building right off the top here. It's 
number one. Oh, look, couple, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Jack Smith asked you to you to take this case out of the normal process and rule on it because it's so important. It's such a novel issue and only this court can do it. He's setting up like, well, yeah, that's why you should take it now for all the right. same reasons Jack Smith d- told you a couple of weeks ago. And of course, he's hammering the normal order. It should be normal. It should be normal order. And did I mention it should be normal and slow? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of, you hear that a hundred times, you know, ac- across the across the brief. So, you know, as we said, this is only an application for a stay. Um, and the standards for granting the stay are as follows. Number one, there must be reasonable probability that four members of the court would consider the underlying issue sufficiently meritorious for the grant of certiori or the notation of probable jurisdiction. Two, there must be significant possibility of reversal of the lower court's decision. <laughs> and three, there must be a likelihood that irreparable harm will result if that decision is not stayed. So that's the standard for granting the stay here. Yeah. 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 And and I think we'll bring this up multiple times, but the Supreme Court can ignore all that if they feel like it. Sure. Yeah. So So he gets into this trying to hit all three of these points. Um, as to the first standard, Trump's argument is basically as follows. He says, the appeal addresses two issues, whether the president possesses absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for his official acts, and whether the impeachment and acquittal of a president forecloses a subsequent criminal prosecution of the president for the same and or closely related conduct. The court is likely to grant a position for certiori to review these questions. Certiori is warranted when, quote, a United States Court of Appeals has decided an important question of federal law that has not been but should be settled by this court or has decided an important federal question in a way that conflicts with relevant decisions of this court. Both criteria are satisfied here. (laughs) Narrator, no, they are not. (laughs) (laughs) But he also says that with regard to the first standard, that the D.C. Circuit ruling is somehow in contrast to the previous Supreme Court rulings, and that's really ridiculous. He says, the D.C. Circuit's decision also warrants review because it decided important federal questions in a way that conflicts with relevant decisions of this court. As discussed below, uh, the D.C. Circuit decision conflicts with Marbury versus Madison, Mississippi versus Johnson, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, and a host of other decisions of this court. <laughs> no, no. The, the, the D.C. Circuit Court's ruling conflicts with my cherry-picked sentences from those decisions. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's got to be annoying to be a, an appellate judge and be constantly faced with these sort of briefings where like one side is like, it's black, it's black, it's black. And the other one says, it's clearly white. It's obviously white. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's why they just decide how they do, I guess. Yeah. Then I think my favorite part is is Trump tries to argue there's a good chance he'll be successful on the merits, it, meaning there's a good chance the Supreme Court will reverse the D.C. Circuit right. Court's ruling. Right. Um, or I should say this, the district court's ruling and the D.C. Circuit Court's affirmation of Judge Chuckin's ruling if I want to be technical about it, I just don't see how they even get there. He argues that DC, the D.C. Circuit got Marbury wrong. They did not. Um, and that they got the executive vesting clause wrong, which they didn't. In fact, it was the basis for Judge Ludig's amicus brief. 
Um, and we talked to him about that on this show. Yes. Then he makes his his weird First Amendment argument for irreparable harm. It, it, as that's the third standard. He says, absent a stay, President Trump will immediately re- be required to bear the burdens of prosecution and trial. Yeah, just like any other person who's being prosecuted. If standing trial were an irreparable harm, no one would ever stand trial. Yeah, he, the decision of the grand jury is what throws you into the irreparable burden of a criminal trial, right? I mean, that's that happens to defendants every day. And as the D.C. Circuit Court said, he is citizen Trump and he has mm-hmm. the same defenses as every other citizen. Mm-hmm. And he goes on to say the D.C. Circuit's extraordinary decision to return the mandate to the district court to proceed to trial imposes another grave species of irreparable injury, a species. The threat to the First Amendment rights of President Trump his supporters and volunteers, and all American voters who are entitled to hear from the leading candidate for president at the height of the presidential campaign. The special counsel seeks to urgently force President Trump into a months-long criminal trial at the height of campaign season, effectively sidelining him and preventing him from campaigning against the current president, to whom the special counsel ultimately reports, President Biden. This would impose grave First Amendment injuries on President Trump and all American voters, whether they support him or not, and threatens to tarnish the federal courts with the appearance of partisanship. Again, if a trial impedes on voters' First Amendment rights, then no one running for office would ever have to face criminal charges. Just a wholly ridiculous argument. Plus, no one else's job is taken into account in criminal proceedings. I think when I was at the hearing with Judge Chutkin to set the trial date for March 4th, she was like, look, if if there's a female professional athlete that's in front of me and she has to go to the Olympics, sorry, I, we have a criminal trial here. You know, like, yeah, yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And it's, you know, the criminal process takes precedence over a lot of things. Like it takes precedence over, over uh, Congress, right? It takes, you know, the uh, Clinton what is it? Clinton v. Jones. You can, mm-hmm. you can stall, you know, you can uh, stonewall a request from Congress, but you cannot stonewall a request from a grand jury, a grand jury subpoena. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then uh, Trump asks for time to file on bonk with the full DC circuit court. But you would have to have one of those three judges mathematically voting to hear, to rehear. So it mathematically can't happen. Uh, it, he says as additional relief, In issuing its stay, President Trump requested that this court direct that the D.C. Circuit's mandate is stayed pending the resolution, not just of proceedings in this court, but also of President Trump's planned petition for en banc consideration to the D.C. Circuit, which he intends to file in D.C. in the ordinary course, which again, there's that term, before seeking, if necessary, this court's review, if given the opportunity to do so. And uh, Professor Steve Vladek says of this prospect Quote, they'll either stay it pending cert, which would include en banc review, or they won't stay it at all. Splitting the difference makes no sense. Zero percent chance this happens. And so, I mean, that whole weird asking for en banc, the D.C. Circuit ruling pretty much precluded him from doing that. Because if this is treated as a petition for cert, you will get an en banc, a chance to ask for en banc review. But you do need five votes for a stay. That's right. So only four for a writ of cert, but Mm -hmm. five for the stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Trump concludes with this. 
This court should stay the D.C. Circuit's mandate pending resolution of President Trump's petition for certiorari in this court. As additional relief, President Trump requests that this court stay the D.C. Circuit's mandate pending the resolution of a petition for en banc consideration in that court before the filing, if necessary, of his petition for cert in this court. So basically he's saying, stop everything and keep everything stopped until I can one step at a time, you know, uh, exercising the full extent of every deadline and every every timeline, piecemeal this thing through for the next, you know, however many months it takes. Yeah. And he's basically saying it's because I'm running for president. Right. That you should right. do this, not for any other reason. Yeah, that's right. So if Supreme Court denies the application for stay, which requires five votes, as we've said, and those three standards have to be met. The D.C. proceedings would be back underway immediately with a trial likely starting in May. Or SCOTUS could treat this application for stay as a petition for a writ of certiorari, which is something they've done a lot in the last couple of years, and grant the stay and give Trump a limited amount of time to file for cert. Uh, Those are the most two likely outcomes. And I think that second one is closest to kind of Jack Smith's like alternative alternate reasoning, which we'll get into in a couple minutes. Yeah, I'm hoping they deny the stay. I don't see how they could conclude that he has a chance of winning on the merits or having the lower court's um, ruling reversed, uh, especially when balanced with the public's interest in a, you know, in, a, in a swift resolution of justice and the law enforcement, uh, the public interest there. And we'll talk a little bit more about some other uh, cases and and how Jack Smith presents that. he. Signals he'll first request en banc, uh, which, like like I said, makes sense because why would you skip that step if you're trying to get a delay here? Right. But he's not requested that yet, right? That's correct. This is just I mean, a stay application. He's not going to ask for it until the absolute last second that it's due. And I'm not sure what that time deadline is on requesting the en banc rehearing, but it's clearly not expired yet. Well, he, you know, and he en banc request would automatically put the mandate into effect. That's kind of how the DC circuit court right, right, made it happen. Right. So he kind of, it's kind of against his own best. That's why he's asking Supreme court. Can I please do on bonk and still have this stayed and not put the mandate into effect? That's right. I don't, yeah. I don't think they're going to let him do that. Cause they specifically said in their, in their, uh, in their ruling on the mandate that it doesn't, if, if he didn't file this with the Supreme court, the mandate would be, that the trial court resumed proceedings. Mm-hmm. And if you requested an en banc rehearing, that that request would not affect the uh, the trial courts going forward with the case. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So Supreme Court is directly going to have to curtail his appeal timeline if it has any chance of moving forward, right? Yeah. Um, now, you know, the, if they just deny the stay, we're, we're back underway. Um, trial in May or June, right? If they don't, uh, and and we'll talk about the proposed timeline. If they grant cert, treat this as a petition for cert, grant cert, and set a, a expedited briefing schedule, and, and Jack Smith proposes one, then we're probably looking at end of summer trial. So we'll see what ends up happening um, because it's going to be about three months that they'll need from the time 
from the time this is resolved and the time that the proceedings in D.C. start back up again, it's going to take about three months from that point to get to trial. Yeah. As you and I have discussed this, uh, you know, in texts and conversations, if they leave the stay in place, I think everything starts to fall apart in terms of the timeline. If they leave the stay in place and they give him the normal amount of time to actually file a, an official request for cert and then handle that in the normal course of business, there's no chance the trial happens before the election. Yeah, no, um, agreed. But Steve Vladek says that that's probably pretty highly unlikely. Yeah, I think so too. I think I think the uh, no stay, go ahead and no stay, we're going to treat this as a as a request for cert and deny it is your dream scenario, right? Yeah, or just no stay and um yeah, and we're not going to do this as a request for cert or deny it. And we'll talk about the Thompson case. That's my dream. Um we'll talk about it in a little bit, but yeah, that's the that would be the fastest way to get this done was for the the December leapfrog to be rejected. Um, with an expedited consideration, which they which they had, uh, and then for the uh, appeals court to rule the way that they did unanimously, brilliantly, mm-hmm. and then to deny uh, application for a stay, which yeah, d- which means hey, cert or not, you can go forward and appeal this junk if you want to, but the the DC trial proceeds. Yeah, the most important element in that whole math problem is the stay getting pulled and the trial court going forward. Yeah. It would be like a home run if they did that and said, and by the way, we're treating your filing as a request for cert and we're denying cert. Then the whole thing is done. Like this whole piece is done. Case goes forward. I'm not sure that we'll get that. I don't know that we'll get like two wins out of this, this uh, round of filings, but. Um, yeah. Steve, we'll Steve Vladek is of the mind that they would not grant cert to deny it. Yeah. They would just not approve the stay. They'll just now say, we don't see it. Move on. Nothing yep. to see here. Yeah. Yep. I hope he's right. I hope so too. All right, <laughs> everybody, we got to take, take a quick break. Uh, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge 
He said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, welcome back. Now let's turn to Jack Smith's response to Trump's application for a stay. Oh, this is so good. And from folks that I've spoken to that have worked with uh, Dreben, this filing mm -hmm. has Dreben written all over it. Um, and it covers all of the bases we talked about, Andy. There was a, a question about how Jack Smith's team would argue against the Supreme Court taking, you know, how he, he said in December, the Supreme Court must take this case, you know, yeah. yep. um, when he was trying to leapfrog over the over the, over circuit, the circuit court. Yep. Um, and I was talking to a reporter who we were just having a discussion and that person asked me about that. Well, you know, Jack Smith already said that the Supreme Court has to take this case. How can he argue that they don't? And um, I said uh, that I was skeptical DOJ wouldn't be able to make the arguments for SCOTUS to not take the case um, because they're arguing against a stay and the standards for a stay. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and and the D.C. Circuit had not come out with the airtight, unanimous, bipartisan, so to speak, ruling. And that kind of changes the entire ballgame. Plus, I figured Trump was only going to file for a stay, not a petition for cert. So D like I said, DOJ can simply argue against granting the stay because Trump is most definitely not likely to win on the merits. And as I wrote on post, uh, the public interest in swift justice countervails the need to grant a stay. But when I spoke to experts like Steve Vladek, he told me that not meeting those three standards for a stay doesn't necessarily prevent SCOTUS from granting the stay. And all of that made it into this filing from special counsel. I honestly haven't read a filing this succinct in a while. They get straight to the point. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Like the the Chiron or the headline when uh, the special counsel team filed this was like, oh, Jack Smith does a 180. Jack Smith does a 180. It's not exactly a 180 because the the issue is different. Um, but And as you said, he's got more reason now to say, well, now you don't need to weigh in because we've had a quick and effective and in our view, legally correct ruling from the DC circuit. So it's logical and makes sense that they're going to say at this point, no, we, okay, we didn't want to go that route, but you made us go that route. Having gone that way, we've taken care of this issue and your your attention is not needed here. But anyway, let's look, let's take a look at the introduction of of Jack's filing. So they start by saying the special counsel on behalf of the United States respectfully submits this opposition to the application for a stay of the mandate of the Court of Appeals pending the filing and disposition of applicants' forthcoming petition for a writ of certiori. The stay should be denied because of applicants' failure to meet this court's settled standards. 
The charged <laughs> crimes strike at the heart of our democracy. A president's alleged criminal scheme to overturn an election and thwart the peaceful transfer of power to his successor should be the last place to recognize a novel form of absolute immunity from federal criminal law. Applicant seeks a stay to prevent the proceedings in the district court from moving towards trial, which the district court had scheduled to begin on March 4th, 2024, before applicant's interlocutory appeal necessitated postponement of that date. Applicant cannot show, as he must to merit a stay, a fair prospect of success in this court. Nor can applicant show that the balance of equities or the public interest favors continued delay of the criminal proceeding. Aha. Yeah, I here knew you it. go. <laughs> to the contrary, the equities and the public interest strongly disfavor a stay. Applicants' interlocutory appeal placed the district court proceedings on hold, thus delaying the trial and the verdict in this case. He has no entitlement to a further stay while seeking discretionary review from this court. Delay in the resolution of these charges threatens to frustrate the public interest in a speedy and fair verdict a compelling interest in every criminal case, and one that has unique national importance here as it involves federal criminal charges against a former president for alleged criminal efforts to overturn the results of a presidential election, including mm-hmm. through the use of official power. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's, that's the, that's it right there. You know, he's, yeah. he's saying there shouldn't be a stay and, and, but if you are, don't even, don't even listen to it because in this particular case, which is what the, the D.C. Circuit Court ruled was in this particular case. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But he walks right up to the word election. Right. But he doesn't right. invoke it. Right. Nor has he mentioned it in any filing to date. He just he, he he says that the public interest and law enforcement interest countervails your desire to make this go slow. I'm sorry. That's but it right. Just does. Whatever occupation or endeavor you're engaged in. It's a bit of a third rail, right? It it introduces politics into the into the case and into the rationale in a way that the special counsel would prefer to not even go near. I totally get that, but it's clear what he's referring to. I also think it's kind of a hilarious comparison to the intro to Trump's papers, which starts oddly with a Yogi Berra quote. I don't even know what to say about that, about that. <laughs> Yogi Berra, not precedent, no precedential value for Yogi Berra in the Supreme Court. I'm just well, saying. I, I was thinking of what other quotes he could have opened it with, like maybe Billy Ray Valentine, Capricorn from Trading Places. <laughs> yeah. or, <laughs> I mean, like, it's just not the place where you, it's not the moment where you go for the laugh. You know what no. I mean? This is like this is a Supreme Court brief for gosh sakes. That and it's not even funny. Yeah. It's just yeah. not a good joke to open with. Your opener has to be strong. Yes. Yes, as you know and we have seen. I mean, and then he goes in his intro to like these broad concepts of like let we need normal order, stop disrupting the normal slow flow of things. And in Jack Smith's finally see the exact opposite. He's like, yep. I want them to focus on exactly what this defendant, this criminal defendant has been alleged to have done and the Mm -hmm. significance of that, all of that is persuasive uh, on the issue of how quickly should this be resolved. Yep. Yep. And he addresses what he said in December. Um, Well, the DOJ, I should say, addresses what they said in December when they tried to leapfrog. Um, They say, recognizing that the applicant's claim of immunity implicates fundamental issues about the role of the president. The government filed a petition for writ of certiorari before judgment 
that's before the judgment of the D, of the circuit court. Yes. To provide this court with the opportunity to resolve Trump's immunity claim at the earliest possible juncture. The court denied review. Then he says, to the extent that that denial reflected an inclination not to review the applicant's claim of immunity from federal criminal prosecution, the court should likewise deny this application and any forthcoming petition, especially now that the Court of Appeals has unanimously affirmed the denial of immunity in a thorough opinion that correctly rejects the applicant's arguments. So what what a beautiful, succinct way to say something that would probably take me 10 pages to say. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, yeah, we told you you had to do this, but that doesn't really apply anymore. And and you said no. And the reason you said no is probably because you didn't want to take this case. So you should think about that. Yeah, <laughs> that's know? called turning it around back on him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the official and, term for that. Yeah. yeah and then they talk about how about what, what the Supreme Court should do if they do actually want to hear the case. He says, if, however, this court believes the applicant's claim merits review, the government respectfully requests that it treat the application for a stay as a petition for a writ of certiorari, grant the petition, and set the case for expedited briefing and argument. An expedited schedule would permit the court to issue its opinion and judgment resolving the threshold immunity issue as promptly as possible this term so that if the court rejects the applicant's immunity claim, a timely and fair trial can begin with minimal additional delay. The government proposes a schedule that would permit argument in March 2024, consistent with the court's expedition of other cases meriting such treatment. And, and there's your echo to Trump v. Anderson, right? The 14th Amendment mm-hmm. case, which they handled very quickly. The mm-hmm. briefing schedule was super fast. Uh, they got the oral arguments done two weeks ago now. Um, mm-hmm. And so basically he's saying like, yeah, do this one, do to this one what you did to that one. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. Yep. Totally. So then the government suggests a timeline and they base it on a recent case. It's one we've just mentioned, the Colorado 14th Amendment case, Trump v. Anderson. They say the government suggests that if the court grants review, it order that applicants brief on the merits and any amicus curiae briefs be filed on or before 10 days after the grant of cert, that the government's brief on the merits and any amicus briefs in support be filed seven days thereafter, and that the reply brief, if any, be filed five days thereafter. The court's recent expedition in Trump v. Anderson reflects that this timeline is fair and reasonable. So not only are they saying, hey, you just did this in this other case, the fact that you did it in the other case means it's reasonable and fair and okay to do, so do it here. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So DOJ effectively argues against immunity for about 30 pages in case SCOTUS treats the application for a stay as a petition for cert and grants it. And something in the merits argument that jumped out at me was footnote seven, which reads, a sufficient basis for resolving this case would be that whatever the rule in other contexts not presented here no immunity attaches to a president's commission of federal crimes to subvert the electoral process. The Court of Appeals analysis was specific to the allegations that applicant conspired to overturn federal election results and unlawfully overstay his presidential term. And a stay can be denied on that basis alone, leaving for another day whether any immunity from criminal prosecution should be recognized in any circumstances. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's super important, right? Because, I mean, the D.C. Circuit ruling was, as we said, narrow on this point. This is what we were talking about at the top of the show. And by the way, they're quoting Judge Ludwig's amicus brief in this yeah. footnote. Yeah. There, as we said at the top of this thing, their effort is to like stay focused on the issue. And that helps the court because the Supreme Court does not like to weigh in on cases where there's like a whole bunch of if then but for possible issues hanging in the, in the breeze. They want to laser focus on as few things as they can and just address those things directly. They have to be issues that are that are completely supported in that case by the facts of the case. Um, and so keeping the, you know, keeping the eye on the ball of you got to take all the allegations in the indictment as true for the purpose of an interlocutory appeal. Uh, they're really trying to keep this thing very focused. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and there even the the quote from the circuit court ruling is that they say we note at the outset that our analysis is specific to this case before us, in which a former president has been indicted on federal criminal charges arising from his alleged conspiracy to overturn federal election results and unlawfully overstay his presidential term. Right? There's that yep. executive vesting clause. And um it was Eric Columbus that pointed this out on Twitter, right? Yep. Yeah. Eric Columbus pointed out that Trump ignored that in his brief to the Supreme Court and instead argued from the position that the DC circuit ruled that presidential immunity doesn't exist at all. And that's simply not true. Uh, the circuit court ruled that immunity doesn't exist for the crimes Trump allegedly committed, which is you know, exactly the point that Judge Ludic was making. So this kind of a narrow ruling happened when Trump wanted to claim executive privilege over documents NARA was going to hand over to the January 6th committee. Columbus wrote, Trump argued that executive privilege should block transmission of the documents, even though Biden waived executive privilege. The main question was whether Trump's invocation of executive privilege should prevail, even though he wasn't president anymore. Now, Trump, of course, lost at the district court with none other than Judge Chutkin presiding and the Court of Appeals, and he needed the Supreme Court to pause the case and take it up. So this is the exact same situation we're Ex in right now. Exactly. Even to, <laughs> to the extent of including Judge Chutkin, which is kind of amazing. I know. Yeah. So Trump applied for a stay pending petition for cert, just like he did here. And in that one, the Supreme Court said no to Trump but not because he was no longer president. Rather, the court wrote that his executive privilege claim would fail even if he was still president because the House's need for the documents was compelling. Much like the countervailing public's interest yes, in yeah, this case. The, the compelling interest that the court has many times recognized in criminal proceedings, even in the presidential context. Right. Yeah. So this is not that would not be a new idea for them to hang their reasoning on. No, it wouldn't. And if you read that denial of the stay, you could almost just plug in different words <laughs> and <laughs> just make do it, it old, <laughs> just find and replace and, and make it happen here. Yeah. Um, actually, let me find I want to I have to read this to you because it's so perfect for this particular scenario. And uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm really glad that uh, Eric 
Columbus brought this up because it's it's just so right on track. Do you know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. exactly what we're seeing here. All right, so I've got the the SCOTUS denial in that case where national he was trying to block national archives. And it says, on application for stay of mandate and injunction pending review, which is exactly what's happening here. Mm-hmm. The application for stay of mandate and the injunction pending review presented to the chief justice and by him referred to the court is denied. The questions whether and in what circumstances a former president may obtain a court order preventing disclosure of privileged records from his tenure in office in the face of a determination by the incumbent president to waive the privilege are unprecedented and raise serious substantial concerns. The Court of Appeals, however, has no occasion to decide these questions because it analyzed and rejected President Trump's privilege claims under any of the tests he advocated. Trump v. Thompson is cited, um, and which is this case, right. without regard to his status as former president. Because the Court of Appeals concluded that President Trump's claims would have failed even if he were still the president, his status as former president necessarily made no difference in the court's decision. Uh, and so that so they kind of granted cert and denied it and denied the stay, but put the reasons like right in the denial. And I think we could see that here. You got to wonder if the D.C. Circuit wrote their opinion with that in mind. I think so. Right? Because they knocked it out on every possible grounds. They specifically, even though they analyzed the specific uh, facts here, they said, we're not getting into whether or not his actions were, you know, within the outer perimeter of presidential responsibility or outside it, official or not. They just said, on these facts, on this indictment, no immunity for you. Yeah. And then, you know, what surprised me was Trump responded. I thought he because the the rules about when a response is due to the Supreme Court, like, the you know, the briefing, the response and then a reply. Right. Right. The third thing. They're very muddy and murky. And he could have sat and waited or asked permission or just kind of hung out. The Supreme Court doesn't need that reply, but he wanted to make one. and He made one pretty fast. uh, Trump did. And it's the same kind of stuff. He first brings up that special counsel argued in December, it's imperative that this court should grant cert. So he's still on that. He then goes after Jack Smith for not saying why the trial needs to go quickly. He says, in a few short lines, the brevity of which speaks volumes, the special counsel (laughs) argues that the nation has a compelling interest in the prompt resolution of this case. But he relies on generic statements about the public's interest in seeing the case resolved in a timely manner and the need to avoid undue delay in all criminal cases. The special counsel offers no explanation why that supposedly compelling interest requires the immediate return of the mandate to the district court to set this matter for trial, likely in three months or less from receiving the mandate. The omission is glaring. Um, and here's here's how he argues against the, the, the case we just talked about, the National Archives privilege, executive privilege case. Yep. He says special counsel cites the recent expedited consideration of Trump v. Anderson, but that case involved an accelerated decision before an upcoming primary election, (laughs) a a quintessential case for expedited treatment. (laughs) I mean, when I need it, I should get it, but that doesn't mean we have it all the time. I guess that's kind of the, the, there's a rule that there's, the rule is there's no rule. 
his argument is, well, you had to decide that quick because an election was coming up. What the hell do you think this is? Yeah. That's oh, my God. It's so funny. Um, I, I seriously can't. And then he said, and the special counsel's rationale cannot avoid the appearance of partisanship. The government took nearly three years to file baseless charges against President Trump. And now it clamors to bring him to trial in three months or less. No, not three months or less. Three months or less from the issue the issuance of the mandate, sir. The yeah. indictment happened last August. Um, so it's not three months or less. And near three years, it was two years and six months. That's quite a rounding um, <laughs> that you're doing there up to three years from two years and six months. Yeah. That's fancy. Anyway, the, we're fully briefed and the Supreme Court can rule at any time. I think I'm going to write up a mock decision to to mirror the one that, that happened in Trump v. Anderson because Just I like it so much. Switch the uh, nouns out and... Uh... <laughs> Yeah. Instead of National Archives, you know. It's it's like the Mad Libs version of uh, Supreme Court rejections. (laughs) Scotus Mad Libs. I love it. Anyway, um, we still have to talk a little bit about Florida because there's a lot going on down there, too, Uh, including Judge Cannon denying Trump something, which I thought was very interesting. We'll talk about it. I know. We got to take a quick break first. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.
All right. Welcome back, everybody. Let's talk about what's going on in Florida. First, since the last episode, Judge Cannon ruled to unseal those supplemental exhibits on Trump's long, weird motion to compel in the documents case. She ruled to unseal those. Those include a list of witnesses and some of their testimony. And that's all covered, by the way, by a protective order on discovery. But she has ruled those to to be unsealed. And then Jack Smith filed. Uh, he he. We we covered that last week. But since mm-hmm. then, Jack Smith filed for permission to include an exhibit under seal an ex parte that he wanted to attach to uh, a motion for her to reconsider her ruling to unseal. Right. So he wanted was, to keep the exhibits that Trump submitted with his motion sealed, which yep. is uh, consistent with the protective order. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he she filed- opened it up. Then he's like, I file a separate motion for you to reconsider this terrible decision that you made. And I am requesting that exhibits to this motion be under seal. And ex parte. Right. And and the reason was, is because that exhibit that he wants to file under seal and ex parte is evidence of social media threats to a potential government witness that is currently under federal criminal investigation at a U.S. attorney's office. Okay. And he wants that to be kept under seal and ex parte to protect that ongoing investigation. Sure, sure. Now, Judge Cannon granted his request to file that evidence under seal and ex parte. But once he submitted it and she read it, she changed her mind on the ex parte part. She expanded it. Uh, to be well, she I guess she she changed her ruling that it shouldn't be sealed and ex parte. It should just be sealed, right? So shared with shared Trump's with Trump legal and his team. team. Yep. Mm-hmm. Now Jack Smith didn't file to oppose, which I thought was weird. Um, and come come February tenth, which was the deadline, he handed that evidence over to Trump. Now the larger issue of Cannon wanting to unseal the witness lists is still not fully briefed. She's given Trump until 223 to well the well the unsealing thing is fully briefed, but his motion to reconsider is not. Right. And she's given Trump until February 23rd to respond to the government's motion for reconsideration. And again, that's the that's the one where Jack Smith said Cannon committed a clear legal error that if not reconsidered would lead to manifest injustice. Yeah, that's um I guess she's, you know, in the Leaving it sealed, but sharing it with the defense. Her logic there is probably, well, it's sealed. So they can't tell anyone. They can't share it outside the defense team. So it's not really going to place the investigation or any of the people involved in it in jeopardy. Um, I think that's uh, unreasonably um, confident in in the defense. Well, it's also weird for Jack Smith to not oppose it because he argued for it to be ex parte in the first place. You know what though? Like in every one of this is you're we're already like five levels down on the <laughs> on the on the issue that this started this whole nonsense, and he's on the verge of having to file to the eleventh circuit to fight this anyway. So he's got to make tactical decisions about how 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 far am I going to argue every little sub decision? Um, I'm sure that the U.S. attorneys who are responsible for those cases and the agents who are doing those investigations are howling about the idea that Trump gets to see that stuff. Uh, but it's And you just know that Trump in some future thing that Jack Smith wants to file ex parte, Trump is going to say he totally abuses the ex parte system. He didn't even stand up for his 
ex parte thing this last time. You know, I mean, you know what I mean, yeah, right? I mean, he's yeah, totally going to be like, he does. This doesn't need to be ex parte, and he knows it. And even one time, he asked for this thing to be ex parte, and then it wasn't. And then he didn't even argue. Like, yeah, you can see that coming, but you know what? You're going to get that kind of nonsense one way or the other. So <laughs> true. I'm Very sure true. they're there. These prosecutors are like, oh my gosh. I mean, how, we can't, we're already, there was a decision. We're fighting that decision <laughs> to fight that decision. We had to file another motion. And then she made another bad decision on the new motion. And now we're going to fight that one too. It's like, how many of these things can we do at once? Um, so it's, it's unfortunate, but they're, uh, they're putting out fires here as quickly as they can and trying to stay focused on the main one. Um, and then, and in the middle of all this, we've got SEPA stuff happening. Um, so our best update on SEPA always comes from our man, Brian Greer, from his uh, Secrets and Laws Twitter account. And on that account this week, Brian said, and I'm going to uh, number these just the way that he did. Number one, Cannon should first rule on the defendant's motion to access all or part of DOJ's Section 4 filings which were filed ex parte by DOJ per standard SEPA practice. This motion should be denied, but if it's granted, she should permit the defendants to see parts of the filings and make arguments based on them prior to ruling on DOJ's Section 4 motion. So this is kind of what he said to us last week, that Mm -hmm. he thinks she might split the baby here. So again, the underlying fight is the normal process is DOJ makes their filings ex parte to the judge, but in this case, Trump's team is like, it's not fair. We want access to everything that they give you, the judge. Essentially getting rid of the ex parte character of this process. And she should have just denied it outright. Probably what she's going to do is split the baby and say, okay, I'll show you a couple things here and there. If she's mm. going to do that, she should do it before she makes the final ruling on what DOJ is proposing. Uh, it would be a way to kind of back herself up and insulate herself from any potential appeal by Trump on this decision. Um, so we'll see how that goes. And then he yeah. says, number two, then she needs to rule on DOJ's Section 4 motion. This will be a classified ruling, but maybe we'll see a public summary. As to Trump, DOJ is likely just trying to use Section 4 to apply for summaries, substitutions, or deletions to a very narrow sliver of discovery likely relating only to documents post-dating his presidency. Judges sometimes have small tweaks to the summaries or redactions, which is fine. That's like normal course of business. So DOJ is probably not swinging too hard for the fences on the Section 4 process anyway, uh, and under normal circumstances, they're likely to get that. But here, Brian goes on, if we see an outright denial, we'll have trouble. Whether DOJ appeals will depend on the sensitivity of the info. Uh, so, but that he means like, obviously if she denies their section four motion entirely, that means everything gets exposed, no substitutions, no deletions. That might be serious enough. If the information is still sensitive, serious enough to send DOJ down another appellate course. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, Brian says, as to Nauta and De Oliveira, Cannon is making DOJ use section four to keep them away from seeing the contents of the charged documents. I mean, their lawyers can see them already. As covered previously, it does not make sense to use Section 4 in this way. It should be litigated under under the Section 3 protective order, but, you know, alas, here we are. DOJ has strong arguments that the defendants don't need to see these documents since they are not charged under the Espionage Act. 
So Brian is cautiously optimistic that DOJ could win the Section 4 motions, perhaps with some tweaks to the Trump summaries and redactions on the margins. Yeah. Okay. Then Brian says, number three is basically the motion to compel stuff that we just covered. Number four, Brian has, on February 22nd, all pretrial motions, except motions in limine, are due for the defendants. Here, we'll see, among other things, a motion to dismiss for selective and vindictive prosecution, uh, something about the Presidential Records Act, and the presidential immunity motion. Uh, Judge Cannon actually denied Trump's motion to delay that due date for pretrial motions, but left open the possibility of Trump filing something after that date if he can show good cause. So, so <laughs> Brian's like... She left the due date in place, but she's going to allow him to violate. Yeah. She's like, whatever. <laughs> Best judge ever. Mm. Not. Brian goes on to say, while the latter borders on frivolous, much more so than the January 6th case, it is quite possible that Cannon will stay the proceedings while she and the 11th Circuit consider it. So if she doesn't rule on the Section 4 motion and the motion to compel soon, it could be a long time before those are resolved. Yeah, he's talking about the, the immunity motion. Right, right. Which is odd to me that they haven't filed that yet, because if they had, they would essentially have started a process that's likely to land in the 11th Circuit, and then they could have added that to their argument to the Supremes, like, hey, the same issue is currently on its way to the 11th Circuit. And yeah, therefore but probably not, because he wasn't president at the time. And so it's kind of like a different set of arguments. Yeah, but I you guess could it's bootstrap not. it. You could say, I took the stuff when I was president. You know, when it all showed up at Mar-a-Lago, I was still, you know, no one else had been uh, sworn in yet. But also, why hurry this case along? It's the one you're successfully delaying. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, play devil's advocate here. He's winning the delay fight a hundred times over. So I would have sacrificed yeah. the delay argument on this to make my appeal to the Supreme Court a little bit more compelling because it raises the t potentially different decisions in different uh, circuits. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, okay. So Brian says, uh, number five, finally on March 1st, the parties are supposed to have a scheduling conference with Cannon ostensibly to schedule the remaining pretrial litigation, including the next critical steps of the SEPA proceedings. This may get put off for the reasons noted. But if it proceeds, we might find out what she's thinking in terms of a new trial date. May is out, but later in the summer is still a possibility. This will largely depend on whether DOJ has to appeal any of her SEPA rulings, as well as the resolution of the motion to compel and the immunity motion. <laughs> so a lot of, well, there's a lot of ground to travel there. There's a lot of off-ramps um, in which... Trump pursuing delay could slow things down or Cannon making ridiculous decisions could force DOJ into the box of having to file more appeals and you know what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that's what's going on in Florida. We have one other quick story and some listener questions, but we need to take one last break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. 
and one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, before we get to listener questions, we should talk about this. Um, In the special counsel Rob Herr case from CNN, we have... House Republicans have reached out to the special counsel, Rob Herr, to discuss having him testify in front of the House Judiciary Committee about his report on President Joe Biden's handling of classified documents, according to three sources with direct knowledge of the matter. Herr's report last week didn't charge the president with a crime, but it painted a picture of a forgetful commander-in-chief who failed to properly protect highly sensitive classified information, a depiction that could hurt Biden politically and that Republicans have seized on. Now, her has retained noted Republican attorney Bill Burke. I inserted the noted Republican there, uh, who previously <laughs> represented special counsel John Durham as his personal attorney. Uh, while there's no date on the calendar, they are looking forward to the end of February, a source has told CNN. The Justice Department declined to comment. Yeah. Yeah. And you know who else Bill Burke represented? Steve Bannon. Reince Priebus, yeah. Don McGahn. Yes. And he's the guy who went through all of the Kavanaugh writings to decide what to keep out of the hearings. Yeah, the he is hearings. the go-to guy, particularly in the last administration for or people in the Trump administration who find themselves under the gun. So no Yeah, and whenever there. we talked about how Priebus and McGahn had to have been singing from the same sheet of music – it was because they were both represented by William Burke. <laughs> well, it's pretty, <laughs> that's a pretty fair guess. Pretty fair guess. All right. Um, and speaking of House Republicans, Andy, uh-huh. the source for their entire impeachment case against President Joe Biden, that guy has been indicted by special counsel David Weiss, of all people. Oh, which, oh. which seems like he's trying to cover his butt on some stuff because discovery is about to happen in the Biden case. This one, just, the, 
It's weird. First of all, not a good day. If you're a prosecutor or an agent working towards an indictment or you have a guy under indictment, you're trying to build your case for trial, and then you're number one star witness who provides really the only piece of alleged evidence of corruption. Uh, it turns out he's lied about the entire thing, and now you're charging him with a crime in any other case. And I tell you this from much experience, in any other case, this would submarine the entire thing. Well, this is this is their second witness who's been indicted. <laughs> yeah. So Not to mention all the witnesses that the House called in who didn't actually provide any information or testimony that was worth anything. But yeah. now you've got a few that are maybe going to jail. Wow. Yeah. So, know. yeah, that's Not a good day. It's fascinating that uh that the House Republicans were laundering Russian propaganda. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Listen to right. questions. What do listen we have? Listen to questions. All right. So we got so many questions this week about Merrick Garland and the whole Rob Herr thing. Um, uh, Jay Swain, uh, Carol, Elizabeth, and, and many other people, they're asking like all over the map about why, why Garland selected her, uh, whether or not Garland can be removed or sanctioned for his choice of her. Um, whether he could remove her from the job, whether he should have, you know, changed the report in some way. So thought it's important just to kind of touch base on that thing real quick. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts on it. Um, as we said last week, I believe it was a mistake to pick Rob Herr. Uh, I've said that from the beginning since when Rob was selected, not because he's not capable or, or any, or it has bet, you know, the wrong, uh, background or anything, but simply because he, uh, he is, was so closely, uh, involved and, and, and deeply involved in the, on the Trump administration legal team at DOJ. He's a political appointee, was involved in, I think, some questionable decisions. And I don't think that, I think that Garland probably selected him because he wanted someone who was a Republican, uh, to give him some political cover. He didn't want someone who would be perceived as, you know, a supporter of Biden investigating Biden. So he picked a Republican. I just think he overshot with it. I think there's plenty of good Republican lawyers who didn't have any connection to the Trump administration that could have done a, a, a fair job. Your, your obligation as AG is to pick someone who's going to do a fair and competent job, not like the guy who's, you know, potentially got an incentive to, uh, to do something in a political way. Uh, yeah, I and why I also, does it even have to yeah. be a Republican? Why is that even a rule? Like, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> that's a that's a self imposed thing that attorneys attorneys general will do in an effort to give themselves the political cover for the selection. Like, hey, you can't say political that cover from the Nazi Party. What? Like, what? Well, <laughs> I, well, I mean, understand? <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm with you, and this was a mistake from the jump, as, as we discussed, you know, a year ago in episode seven, right? Right. Um, right. Now, I, I think that as far as removing, sanctioning, pulling the report, redacting the report, I, I think it's too late to do any of that without looking bad totally. or acting or acting totally like a bill agree. Barr. I, I wouldn't want Merrick Garland to act like bill Barr. Right. Even if it's for the right reasons. And not the yeah. Wrong well, reasons. I mean, any of those things I argue 
would be in the category of making a bad thing worse, right? Because they would all mm-hmm. be reportable to Congress. They would all create the impression that Garland was actually trying to meddle with the result to protect the president, to help him politically, what have you. I think all that would create a lot of static and needless um, you know, uh, controversy for the administration. They would, whatever Garland did that was perceived as protective of Biden would be imputed to Biden. They would say like, oh, Biden must've told him to do it. So you really don't want that. You want the special counsel to their report to stand for themselves. And if it's going to be criticized by people for reasons, then fine. Like that's fine. You can do that. But once and honestly, the, a mandate or a rebuke of, of Merrick Garland from President Biden would be to select a different attorney general in a second term. And I think that that's a very likely possibility. Yeah, yeah, could it could go that because way. Because of this mistake. And, it, and it's the type of thing that would be far enough removed in time from how this was handled that he could very discreetly say like, well, you know, or really how that would happen is Garland would resign and say he's moving on to greener pastures or something. But who knows? We don't. That's all speculation. Yeah, I came here to do January 6th. Jack Smith has that. The the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office has the boots on the ground, guys. I've done my job, duty to country. I'm resigning. But yeah, that would be the punishment, I think, for for Merrick Garland would would, would be a second term Joe Biden, different pick for attorney general. And who knows? It might be that Biden is is not kind of pinning this on Garland. I mean, Biden, the ultimate institutionalist, he obviously uh, feels very strongly about Garland, put him in as AG, kind of in, in, in um, you know, response to how he was treated by Mitch McConnell and everybody else during the Obama and his administration and his, his nomination to the Supreme Court, not going forward. So uh, I don't know. And we'll, we'll have to see how that happens. If Biden gets reelected, we'll find out the answer. But um, when, when Biden get, gets reelected. <laughs> Re-elected. <laughs> One way or the other, we'll see. But that's our our kind of uh, combined question for the week, all things Garland. Very cool. Thank you so much for submitting your questions. If you have questions, we have a link for you in the show notes. You can send those questions to us. Uh, but yeah, I want to be clear because a lot of people come at me like, oh, you, you cape for Merrick Garland. What do you think of this? I think it sucks and I don't think he should have appointed. People never listen to me when I criticize Garland. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> I, it, you. You've been doing this show with me for a long time. There's been several instances and decisions that I've disagreed with uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland on. One of them was the appointment of her, um, and I I think that that was a mistake. And I'm happy to call him out on his mistakes. What I won't do yeah. is bash the entire institution. You know, the Department of Justice is an institution, or or question. Um, I, you know, I won't question Merrick Garland's intent. I don't think he's working for the Federalist Society right. to protect Trump no, and all no. that other stuff. And to be fair, right, <clears throat> Garland has done plenty of good things as AG. I mean, the, the selection of Rob Herr, I think, is a mistake. But like in the <laughs> end of the, whenever he stops being AG, want to sit down um, and just evaluate his his time in office, that Colin's going to have entries on both sides. Right. Yep. He's done a good job yep. with civil rights. He's done a good job bringing back, kind of returning some rigor to the process of consent decrees and investigations of uh, law enforcement agencies. He is, by any standard, a fair and decent man. Um, he's, you know, I, I just think that, you know, this one wasn't great. When you're in a, one of these jobs running in a massive agency and the stakes on everything that you do are so high, you're not going to get every decision, right? I mean, I know that personally. So um, <laughs> that's just, 
Yeah, but to swing so hard to the other side to pick kind of a political creature uh, with the known background of her uh, to run this thing was just, it was a, it It was an overshot. Yeah, it was an overshot. I'm sure the pendulum swung too far the other direction. And it could be a staff thing too. That, I mean, he didn't just pick the guy out of the clear blue sky. His staff recommended a whole list of possible selections. Well, he was only one of two Trump holdovers. That that hadn't been removed from the Department of Justice. The other one was Durham. Yeah, actually, her wasn't a holdover because he left. He left his gig as um, Baltimore or Maryland um, U.S. attorney. Was in oh, private right. practice. It was Weiss, and, and then got Durham. picked out. Weiss was the was mm-hmm. the other holdover. Weiss was the other guy. But that's it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Durham Weiss. I I wouldn't want to be in that club. <laughs> no. Personally. No. <laughs> yeah, no thank uh, you. All right. No, no. Uh, well, you know, we're going to cover that uh, indictment of the Smirnoff guy uh, pretty closely on Clean Up on All 45 this week. So uh, plus that f- the Fonnie Willis testimony, amazing Fonnie Willis testimony that happened down yeah. in Fulton County. We'll talk about that too. But uh, Andy, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here today? No, I'm hoping someday, some Friday, we get a nice light load. One or two good stories that that we can cover quickly, but that does not seem to be happening. <laughs> nah, so, next week we're going to have this immunity one, ruling. The D- DC trial is going to pick back up. It's, yeah. gonna- <laughs> it's game on, fellas. Let's go. All right, everybody. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said... Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content.
Subscribe now.